What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to episode 246 with my guest, Kate Spencer. Today's episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code MENTAL at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive, <laughs> everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not, for the love of God, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Listen to me. That should be your first clue. This is not a doctor's office. I am not a therapist. This is more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, go there, check it out, uh, join the forums, uh, read some blogs, uh, fill out a survey. You can buy a coffee mug or a t-shirt. You can support the show by donating there. Um, all kinds of stuff you can do at the website. Go, go uh, check it out. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at mentalpod. Um, that's a great way to get uh, stay in the loop about. Uh, I like to tweet articles that people send me or um, groups that I, I like to support, people's projects that uh, uh, I want you to know about. So, um, yeah, follow, follow me on the Twitter. Let's get right to it. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Kay and about his depression. He writes, even thinking about trying to do what I'm supposed to do is too overwhelming to start thinking about. Thinking about thinking is too exhausting. Oh my God, do I relate to that one? Uh, about his anxiety. Appointments at 9? Great. I'll be dressed, ready, and in the car by 5.45, just in case there's three hours of traffic in the two miles of my commute. <laughs> Thank you for that. 
Um, this is filled out by Bridget about her depression. She writes, maybe if I work out for two hours, I can sweat out the sad. About having borderline personality disorder, she writes, everything and anything I feel is definitely and absolutely not a lie. Snapshot from her life. Because of my impulsivity issues from BPD, I think about fucking almost everyone I meet. Because I've been raped multiple times, I think about being raped by almost everyone I meet. Fortunately, I'm at the point in my life where neither of these thoughts are actually happening in reality. And then any comments to make the podcast better, she writes, please have a guest who has borderline. Uh, I've had one on, but I am definitely up for uh, having more uh, guests on. I have one potentially coming up from San Diego uh, later this fall to record. Uh, Listen to the episode with... um, uh, oh God! Why am I blanking on her her fucking name? Uh, Susanna Brisk, a uh, great episode, and she's very uh, forthcoming about um, what it's like to live with uh, borderline personality disorder. This uh, is the same survey filled out by a guy. <laughs> I love this name. He calls himself Pacific North Worst. <laughs> Might be my favorite name ever. Uh, about his depression, he writes, uh, my doctor won't diagnose me with depression, so I guess I really am just a lazy piece of shit who's bad at life. Oh, buddy, I just want to give you a hug. You are not. You are not. Um, about his intrusive thoughts, he writes, just because I'm not a pedophile today doesn't mean I won't wake up as one tomorrow. Uh, a snapshot from his life, while listening to an inspirational story of someone overcoming immense mental and emotional trauma, I find myself thinking, wow, they could afford all that therapy? They must have a way better job than I do. Thank you for that. Uh, this is filled up by a guy who calls himself Dandar Smash. About his depression, he writes, general depression is like smashing on the buttons of remote control that has no batteries. That's a great one. And then this was filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself the Hitchhiker. And about his anxiety, he writes, too scared of doing the wrong thing to do anything at all. Oh, my God, do I relate to that one. About his love addiction, I just want someone to hold me. Oh, my God, do I relate to that one. And then about having Asperger's, he writes, I'm an actor who never got their script, and it's opening night. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, (laughs) So, that is when I first felt love. Like, I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, This intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Kate Spencer, who I met um, for the first time in person about uh, five minutes ago. (laughs) It's true. But uh, we exchanged tweets, and I know that you're uh, a performer here in Los Angeles. You're a mom, and you're an anxious worrywart. Yeah. I was like, well, let's get on the podcast and talk about this. And I'm I'm a big fan of the podcast. Well, I appreciate that. Where do we start? 
Man, that's a great how many, how, question. Uh, how many kids? I have two daughters. How old? They're two and they're four. One's oh two and one's four. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't even imagine how many days you must feel overwhelmed. A lot. It's a lot. Um, but it's good. Although like sometimes it gets the, like today I was definitely feeling, you, you, you feel ragey at them and then you feel guilt for feeling ragey, or at least I do because there are people who, whose kids have died or who don't have kids or who's going through something terrible with their kid. You know, I'm in a constant uh, conversation with myself about uh, what I should, things I should feel guilty mm-hmm. about. Um, so <laughs> you have a pr- pretty, pretty big ammunition dump. Uh-huh. Oh, it's huge. I can find something and then I can make something up on the spot. I'm really good at creating, uh, things to suffer over. Were you raised Catholic? No, but don't I sound like I was? It does. I'm from Boston. And, um, if you're not, I think there's a, a way of being raised like Puritan, which is what I'm mostly a wasp with a little bit of Catholic uh, Irish, Irish, uh, Italian Catholic mm-hmm. thrown in there, but there's so many Catholics in Boston. I think it, it's just kind of the energy more geographically mm-hmm. of where I'm from than, than any religion. Okay. Um, there's a lot of guilt in new England. I don't know if anyone else from new England can ever relate to that, but that's how it's always felt to me. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, what are the big issues that you, that you struggle with? Oh gosh. I mean, I've, been a lifelong person with anxiety. I've only recently kind of real like been able to pinpoint when it started. I think it started much earlier than when I actually acknowledged it. Like are we talking panic attacks or just I, distracted? Both. I can remember my first panic attack that for years I did not A girl identify. always remembers her first panic That's attack. Right. You never forget where you were. <laughs> It was, and I bet there are women that had their first panic attack when they lost their virginity. <laughs> yes, in fact, probably I, instead of an orgasm. In fact, you know what? Somebody somebody shared that in an awfulsome moment. I don't know if she was losing her virginity, but she was. She had a panic attack while she was masturbating. I think that's oh, that's what it was. And I was like, that is fucking Thankfully, fantastic. I have never had that. That is, they've never crossed over. Yeah, my wife and I were having sex one time, and there was a nearby church. And at the moment I announced that I was about to disembark, you know, Such whatever, a polite way whatever, whatever you want to call it, uh, the church bell started chiming. Oh, that's so and wonderful. And we both laughed so fucking hard. See, I i don't particularly believe in any religion, but I think if I did, that's the kind of religion I would want to believe in. Is one that yeah. was like, yes, you are about to, you're about to come. Like, let's sh- like ring the bells. Yeah. You know what I mean? Rather it, than feeling shame about that. It was, it was awesome. That's it so funny. Awesome. Good church. Um, so your first panic attack? How? Oh yeah, I was. I think I was eight years old. And wow. I, yeah, I, I think, and I, I, I it, it honestly just dawned on me about like this year that I was like, oh, that wasn't just like a kid having a meltdown. Like I was having a full on anxiety attack, and I, I think I realized this because I was. It, I found with anxiety and with my OCD. Uh, that it flares, that it flares up, like something exacerbates it or, or brings it up, and then it flares like a chronic illness almost. You know what w- I mean? Where it'll hang around for a while? Yeah, like it comes and goes. Um, Does it need s- triggers to yes. stick around? Yeah, so it loves triggers. Yeah, and so I, I think when I was eight, uh, I, I can see now what trigger. I was at horseback riding camp, and the whole thing, I think, was like, eating away at my anxiety. It was like a really intense camp where you got up at 6am and got your horse out of a field and 
groomed it and fed it. And then you were allowed to eat like two hours later, you know, and I was like a a kid, a little kid. Anyway, at the end of the session, there's a horse show and my parents had come up and I was supposed to um, tack up the horse, which just means you put the saddle and the bridle on it. And the weird thing is, is I had never learned how to do this. I think because I was so young that counselors would always do it for me. So when it came time to do it, to go get this horse ready for the horse show, I had a pan. I had a panic a- attack, and I couldn't. How could an eight year old even lift a horse saddle up onto a horse? I I I think that's probably why I had never done. It. I mean, it is doable. I you know, it's not crazy, but I I just instead of like what someone normal would do not normal but you know like in a right state of mind of just like go ask someone for help or say like you know i don't know how to do this i felt so much like embarrassment about not knowing how to do it and i didn't want to admit it so instead of just saying that i was like sick and ill and hysterical and just like wanted to leave and i I, and my parents i can remember them being so confused as to what was going on and then they got someone to help me and then i competed and it was fine but it was this it was this huge enormous overwhelming like emotional moment it's making my stomach tighten it hear was about it awful. because i know that i know that feeling when you're a kid and you don't understand what's big and what's not and you make huge things yes. out of little things Boy, who am i kidding as an adult i make huge things out of um i got three phone calls in a row between five and six o'clock tonight and I could feel myself starting to be completely overwhelmed because I'm like I'm gonna have to return three phone calls and in my mind I immediately go to uh, the conversation is going to drag on and on and I'm not going to be able to get (laughs) stuff done that I need to get done and in my warped brain my sense of time is completely irrational. It's like, oh, I got to go to the bank. That's going to take four hours. Uh, and and I, and I just, so I can't imagine being that eight-year-old kid and you're seeing everybody around you, I would imagine. Fine. Fine. Knowing yeah. what they're doing. Yes. And yeah. that must have been terrifying. It was terrifying. And, and then, you know, like I'm able to now look back at my childhood and see like identify that I, it was already there um, as a kid. You know, it was already like uh, I had a really hard time doing schoolwork. I was bored and I just wouldn't do it. It was like all this kind of like worksheet garbage. And, and that's what the thing was called. Was It was called worksheet, called worksheet garbage. garbage. Which in, in hindsight was bad marketing. Yeah, yeah, I know. Common Core has fixed all of that, I'm sure. <laughs> but they, it was, um, I wouldn't do it. And the teacher, I remember her pulling me aside and just showing me like her assignment book and I had all zeros by my name and she was just like, I'm going to have to hold you back next year if you don't start doing your work. But I couldn't articulate like, hey, I'm bored. This is not stimulating. I'm a right-brained person. <laughs> Instead, I just couldn't do it and I couldn't tell my pa- It was just, it was, I just, um, I like did a lot of silent suffering and creating huge issues for myself rather than kind of learning how to communicate what was going on no wonder you're an improviser yeah right (laughs) it turned out how i was supposed to turn out you interior decorated your your brain yeah as a little kid yeah like i'm gonna set up shop here it was rough yeah and so i so i can see it now like i get really worked up about things that probably don't need to be things that probably don't need to be 
huge or for someone who doesn't have this they aren't huge or they can find rational ways to conquer them become like huge overwhelming sweaty heart palpitation nauseous situations wow heart palpitating and nauseous that's pretty intense yeah yeah that's what i was going through this year a lot of heart palpit i finally went on antidepressants this year and did it work it's working i think it is it is i also made some some like life adjustments um but you know like i had drinking codeine for breakfast i mean let me tell you though I have definitely self-medicated with codeine cough syrup before. Have you? Yeah, yeah. I think I, uh, before I was ever given a prescription to Ativan, I think I definitely self-medicated with medicine I got from the college uh, nurse. Codeine cough syrup, any sort of like Benadryl. I did a lot of that. And then finally, someone gave me an Ativan uh, prescription. And that really, because uh, sleeping is a huge nightmare for me. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Sleeping is where a lot of the anxiety churns. I have so, I went through a terrible, terrible bout of insomnia where I, I would, it would take about six hours to, oh, to fall asleep. God, so miserable. And um, it was mostly because I was just coming off a, a med that was terrible. And I thought, how do people live with this? Yeah, it's, you it's, know, mine only lasted a month and it was sheer hell. I don't necessarily have insomnia. I have a lot of like settling my brain down at night. I don't maybe it's while the same thing. While you're awake or while you're trying to fall asleep. I'm trying to fall asleep. Yeah. I would call that insomnia. I guess it is. I guess it is. But that's my like um compulsive thoughts will will flare up at that time. Yeah. Um I don't know anybody who has insomnia um where <laughs> has a quiet where, where where it isn't related to compulsive cyclical um, kind of obsessive thinking. Yeah, that's um, I didn't. I don't know if I actually have really ever like dug into what insomnia is, but that's really interesting. So there, so people's brains are always just churning and they can't settle them down. I don't know if that's everybody, but yeah. of the people I know who've shared with me that they have insomnia, it's almost always related to a racing brain or you know going off a of med or some type of uh, you know drinking too much caffeine yeah. or something like that. Well, caffeine definitely flares up my anxiety. Like I've had to cut coffee out because it was making my anxiety so much worse um but i noticed like when i first when i was in college my ocd started getting really bad um but and and i'm gonna jump around here but like one thing that was has been really powerful for me as an adult is kind of coming to understand my obsessive thoughts as 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 part of that and that was honestly, in, in, in hearing Maria Bamford stand up, was the first time I've ever heard another person identify what I was going through with my thoughts. And I was like, oh, this isn't, I'm not just crazy. This is an actual thing that has a, has a name. Yeah. I had no I had no idea until I heard her do that bit about like chopping kids up into bits and then mm-hmm. eating the bits and then feeding the bits. Mm-hmm. And I heard that and, I, and I, I, I was like, oh, me too. Except I have the thoughts of me being chopped up into bits and what that would be, you know, like what that would be like. And that fuels all this panic in my life. And uh, and when that was happening, when that first started happening, I would try to go to bed and I would just have, uh, th- like I, co- I couldn't control these thoughts and they'd be so specific and so terrifying that I literally, I thought I was going crazy. Were they always kind of gory and violent and yeah. you were the victim? Yeah, yeah. So I do a lot of like... Um, I'll, I'll read a, a news story. Specifically, what happened at the time I, when I was like 20, I was living in Portland, Oregon. I was depressed and miserable and with a boyfriend in a really dysfunctional situation. And 
I would hear a news story and then I would devour as much information as I could about that news story, obsess about it, want to need to know everything. And then I would not, and then I would project that what happened in that news story was going to happen to me. And so then that would fuel so much like fear and anxiety and um, kind of compulsive behavior. Oh, wow. So at the time, um, a woman, her daughter, and an exchange student had been murdered in Yosemite by this. Oh, I remember that. Do you that. remember that? Yeah. yeah. The, dr- the drifter. Who yes. Was, yeah. And then he beheaded another woman. Yeah. Like I can, I, I, I can tell you all the details because I'm like so well versed in it because I would consume all the information and then be convinced. And then I would replay in my head what had happened to them over and over again. Didn't he start a fire too or something like that or no? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm the thinking same of guy. Else. Oh, he did. He did burn the car that they were in. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, it's a hor- It's a horrible story, but I became... Do you mind if I take my shoes off? No, please. Are you right. kidding? Um, I just became consumed with it or like, and or if, you know, there was a man breaking into a woman's apartments through the window and then I became convinced that that was going to happen to me and... Was it... Your your obsession, your need, because obviously you were aware, oh, I'm devouring stuff yes, about yes, this. Yes, yes, yes. Was your obsession with it intellectual or emotional? I think what, it's emotional. What, yeah, so you would tell yourself, I, I need to know about this because it's going to be, I'm going to eventually achieve some type of catharsis? I I. I don't. I honestly could you see, don't know. Could you see that it was feeding your yes your insomnia? I don't your, know if then I could, but now I. It, you start to be able to be able to pull back and be like, it's because it's titillating in a way. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel good, but it, it like it churns up adrenaline and whatever it is in your body that kind of like it's like a five minute horror movie. Yeah, yeah. It kind of just gets you going, and I, I think I later realized it. I was later in my twenties. I was doing this thing where like every night when I would go to bed, I would just think about my grandparents dying and playing and get so worked up playing in my head, what that was going to be like fearing it, dreading it, getting so caught up in it that I'd be like crying every night. And I started going to therapy for the first time then. And the therapist was like, well, you're how old were you? I think I was 25 when I started going to therapy. And the therapist was like, well, you're putting yourself you, you're you're wanting to feel what that is going to experience what that experience will feel like so you're trying to you're kind of like testing it to see what that is going to feel like See if you can handle it yeah or just kind of it's scary to you and so the way you're learning about it is kind of putting yourself through the process of it so i mean that was kind of like training wheels <laughs> for exa- the real yeah, life yeah and then it and then when it happened my mom got cancer like a year after that i was doing that and then it and then it had was like a self a horrible self fulfilling prophecy because then it happened. Wow. And yeah, I mean I don't know if it was self fulfilling, but um, no, you caused it. I did cause it. Luckily, You're- I don't. Luckily, I don't have that. I don't necessarily have that. Like, I did this, so I caused. No, that. you're the cancer causer. Yeah, you you're think can- so? Do you yeah, think I went into yeah. my mom's pancreas and plugged the tumor down? I, I just something right. It, somehow that name fits you. Yeah, very my well. Went like they are that energetic and powerful. I'm, I'm going to print up t-shirts. Thank you. And I would like causer. you to make sure that you wear your cancer causer t-shirt. 
And on the front it says cancer causer, and on the back it says who's next. Oh, I could just go around spreading it mm-hmm. everywhere. Well, I mean, part of it is I'm so worked up about myself getting cancer that I'm sure I'll give it to you myself. You and my wife would get along. Would we? She has a colonoscopy coming up, and she is a basket case about it. She's cracking jokes, too, which is which is nice. One of those jokes she's she made was, uh, she said, what if I get there and the doctor has a GoPro on his dick? <laughs> That's my lady. Oh, that's not like a good match. Yeah, we are. We are. Um, so your mom gets sick. Mm-hmm. And does a part of you feel like? I used to tease my mom and say, don't die. I used to say that to her a lot. And then she did. And I felt bad that I put her through. I felt, uh, I don't think, I mean, it was joking because I was so close with my mother that her, that losing her was like the ultimate fear of my life and so much I think of my anxiety is fear-based that I mean I don't think I I don't ever I never felt like I caused it but I did feel like are you fucking kidding me you know like and and my mom when my mom's cancer was terminal like she was diagnosed it was stage four so Uh it wasn't even like there was a glimmer of like this is the we're gonna be the this. good kind of cancer. Yeah, the pancreatic is the yeah the she worst. had pancreatic. Yeah, so that's like the ultimate oh. worst Michael Landon cancer. I'm so sorry. How long ago did that happen? Eight years ago. She died in 2007. Yeah. So so that was hard because that was that was something I had spent so much of my anxiety dreading and like obsessing about. And then it it was, mm-hmm. but but also, I mean, I guess ultimately, the nice thing is that I survived it. So I kind of over, you know, made it through Without, what I had deemed the worst thing to ever could that could ever happen that would to it, me. That it just would destroy you. Yes, yeah. yeah, which it did. But you know, we're a lot more resilient. I think and here you are realize. talking about here it. I am mm. on a podcast. Yeah. My mom, this is what the whole purpose yes, she, of that experience. She was put on earth <laughs> for you to come <laughs> to a closet strewn with old computers. But beautiful wood furniture. Thank you. My mom would love this furniture. Thank you. Um, what, share some beautiful moments in, from the, dark months that your mom was dying. Mm, you know, I lo- I'm so glad you asked that because my mom, so she lived for nine months after her diagnosis, eight and a half. And when she was diagnosed, my brother and I both immediately just quit our jobs and moved home because we were both living in New York and working and my parents lived in Boston. So we were both like, fuck this and what moved and moved back into our childhood bedrooms. And we all lived together as a family, which is not something you like once you're you know you've moved out of your house you never think like you're all gonna get back together yeah that's and live in your childhood home and it was actually like uh, it was amazing it was one of i'm so grateful for it it was such a it was a lot of fun like it was i mean when my you know must it most of it was not but there were a lot of like fun happy moments of us especially in the beginning before the illness like really started just choking everything that we got to be together again and just like have dinner again and learn new sides of each other um and that was really special i was like i I just don't you know i would never that would have never happened if my mom had not gotten sick and so 
do you ever because i would imagine in those moments you are absorbing every single detail you can and being as present as you can the good the good moment you know let's yeah. say let's say you're at at dinner with your your mom and your brother and your dad and somebody makes a joke and you all laugh or i don't know get some something where you felt like this is where i'm supposed to be in this very moment you know i'm here for my my mom um did you have moments like that where you where you felt like you were fully, fully present and you weren't worrying about the rest of your life? Yeah, I think a lot of it. I mean, I can remember, you know, it's hard because in the first few months after she was diagnosed, she felt good. I mean, she couldn't eat solid foods. I mean, she didn't feel, excuse me, great. But she would say, like, it's so weird because I, for the most part, feel okay. Like, once they put they put stents in to make it so... Food, you know, her tumor was kind of like encroaching on everything. So they made it so that food could still could pass through her stomach and she started chemo and it all sucked. And it, But there were moments where she was like, I just don't, I feel okay. And like we would go shopping, I can remember it's like shopping for pants and have like trying on clothes together and just like having the best time. And my, and you know, she would buy things for me because I was there in 26 and in credit card debt. And it was fun. It was fun. Or we would like watch every night. We'd watch, um, God, what is that stupid show with Howie Mandel where they open suitcases? Oh, I know what you're thinking Do you know what I'm of. talking about? I do. <laughs> like, I do. Uh, this is eight years ago. I don't think that show's yeah. even on the air no. anymore. Who wants to be a millionaire? Who wants to be a millionaire? My, my mom and my brother would watch Wheel of Fortune every night and then Jeopardy. And then my mom would like do crosswords and my dad would come home from work and he would eat dinner after us and we would all watch that stupid who wants to be a millionaire show. And there was just something like very um, simple about the routine and also like kind of wonderfully morbid. Like my mom had a, a really sick, wonderful sense of humor. And so like we used, she, you could definitely joke about things with her. Um, you know, like she and I used to joke about how, uh, if she died and she wasn't at my wedding, I'd have a flower girl throw her ashes down the aisle. <laughs> like I tell that to people and people are genuinely horrified, but that's the kind of relationship I had with my mom that like, you could say that to her and she would think it was hilarious. And that's how my whole family kind of is. I mean, it can make it, it, it could be hard. It's easier, I think, to do that than to actually talk about the pain that we're in a little bit. So, you know, it was just, it was a lot of that, but then, but then I got sp- bad very quickly you know because she was there you know it was okay 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 and then she had a a sepsis infection i would say about like five or six months in that basically almost killed her and because of that she had to stop chemo for a while and her gallbladder collapsed so then they had to drain her liver and her gallbladder with like tubes coming out of her stomach that we would then that would have these like bags filling with like bile and we would have to pin those to the inside of her shirt you know like then i think the thing with with cancer is like it starts to just chip away and then that happened so she couldn't go back on the chemo not that the chemo was really working but we were all kind of like pretending that you know like it it didn't not work so you know then it, it just starts to every it just starts to you know destroy you know she couldn't eat and then she had less energy. And then during this, her mom died. Oh, wow. um, yeah, my grandmother died 
who was 91 or 90 or something like that. But that also was a huge emotional, you know, my mom. Did you kill her too? I did. No, she did not have cancer. So I did. You not. actually just pushed her in front of I a bus. I did. I was like, come on, get yeah. out of here. Let me worry about my mom. <laughs> um, no, she was, my grandmother was amazing. And, and my mom and her were very close. So then I had to watch my dying mother lose her mother. And then my, and then my mom must've died like six weeks after her mom. Not soon after, but I think that like the emotional loss for my mom, it was just like, you know, it was just, it just, uh, it went downhill very fast. So th- it, there, it was, it was, you know, I trained for a half marathon during the time my mom was sick. Or I actually did two half marathons and raised money because I was like, it was all I knew. You had to do something. Yeah. Like you had the, you have like coping mechanisms of like, I can't cure my mom, but I can raise money and that'll somehow solve it. Um, but did that it, was, did, did it help, you know what it was easy, the feeling of helplessness. It did. It did. It was very, an amazing, I felt very held up by people. I raised like 25 to $30,000 and so much of it came from, um, the comedy community in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm a performer at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And that was kind of a time in my life where I, where, you know, with comedians, you don't often like talk about the awful shit that's gone on in your lives. And when I, I just can remember like when I, I was worried about how people were going to treat me or if people were going to not want me to perform with them because I was missing so many shows and all this stuff. And I was like the UCB community, the actual like UCB theater and then just the huge community performers like literally carried me. I mean, like they were, my friends were just. And people I didn't know, like strangers, were just like amazing. Like in what way? Well, when I ran my race in Maine, I ran it in Portland, Maine, um, a van full of my friends from New York drove up and surprised me and positioned themselves along the race so that like I would see them with sign. And I didn't know they were going to be there. And then my friend uh, Katie uh, flew in from L.A. to be there at the end. So like, you know, it was just like, what, what the fuck? That's amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. And I don't think I've ever fully been able to even say thank you in the right way. Like, I don't even think I've ever written thank you notes for it. But just because I was so such a mental case for so long while this was happening. But even like this guy, this guy, Matt Himes, who is a, a New York performer, I'll never forget. He like sent me at Us Weekly from 1987. And because he know, knew I like loved celebrity and pop culture. And it was just like, it's still, I saved it. I don't think I ever said thank you, but it like touched me so much that he like had this weird thing, knew I was going through a shitty time and, and sent it to me. It, like, it was just, it was just. Um, to know that people were thinking of you. Yeah, it was. Re- and also without like. Without pitying you. Yes. And comedians don't have a hard time, I think, um, expressing emotion. A lot of them. Sincerity can be yes. really, it can almost be like fire to Frankenstein with, so with comedians. Yeah. And I'm not like that. I'm like very emotional and verbal. Um, but I was really, I was really moved and continue to be like moved by the relationships I've found in the comedy community that that I didn't, I didn't expect when this was happening. I was kind of like, well, it's just a bunch of weirdos in a theater. And I was like, oh no, this is a real um huge community that cares about me and that was really and also people would corner me drunk and tell me about their dead moms and dying moms and cancer story you know people were suffering 
and I didn't know it until I had to go through it. And then people felt like it was safe to share it with me. Doing this show, I'm at a loss to to, to explain it, but people open up yeah. so readily. People, you know, that that I'd met before will bump into me in a coffee shop and say, hey, I've been listening to the podcast. And then they'll just start sharing about something heavy that they went through in their yeah. life or that they're going through right now. And I think to what my life would have been like if I had never gotten help, if I'd never yeah. started to open up how many beautiful opportunities I I would I would miss and and how alone I would be in just muddling through. Yeah. Well there's so much comfort I think in like in this podcast in particular. Just like any time you know, it's actually really interesting for me because I've listened to so many of my friends on it mm-hmm. and sharing stuff that like I know and we share a little bit of, but just being really raw and open in like such a amazing, vulnerable way in a different side that I, you know, it's like getting to know them in a whole new way or people that I don't know that I really admire who open up about such, I just think it's so important sharing that information because what I realize as I get older is that we're all suffering. We've all had things happen in our lives or are just programmed certain ways and I spend a lot of time feeling like I'm the only person and I, you know, being to be constantly reminding yourself that you're not is very powerful because I spend a lot of time being like, I am a, I'm a monster and no, everyone else is sane talk, and living glorious lives. Talk about that. I, str- I struggle a lot with self-esteem. Because monster is such a strong. It's a great. Are you saying that comedically or do you really kind of feel like there there's a part of me that's monstrous? No, I don't say I say that comedically, but it is a word I use. My mom was very self-deprecating and it's something I have inherited. It was like her go to, I think, to make people feel comfortable, her go to for humor. I do the same thing. It's like how I try to get everybody to feel good. It's endearing. It can't. I I I like it, but Assu- I, assuming it, that there's other ways of expressing yourself right. other than just constantly putting, putting yourself, yourself down. down. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Well, you know what? I wouldn't mind it if I didn't have two daughters, and all I want for them is to be the fucking two biggest badasses in the world. And I'm like, I can't talk shit about myself to make other people feel better because then they are going to do the exact same thing and and because you start you because you believe the things you say i think most people who self-deprecate it's coming from a place of truth or at least like believed truth so i i don't um that's like one thing i really don't want them to inherit of all the garbage they're gonna inherit from me what do you uh say or think about yourself Oh, I have a lot. It's been really bad lately, actually. A lot of negative um, body image stuff, um, which is very interesting for me because it's something like I feel like body. I'm I'm annoyed by that because I've gone. I've been have had no self esteem about my looks or my body my whole life, and it's like I'm a 35. I'm a grown up who's given birth and held jobs and voted and I own a home and yet like I still look at myself and and or look at how much I weigh and that emotionally brings me down and I have a running narrative in my head about like oh I'm gross I look terrible I'm so fat oh I'm this and that that is really self-destructive and I don't like it um and I'm and I've really been lately thinking like I, I need to make some changes that so that this is not 
where my energy is going. What do you think the changes would would look like? One, I need to stop weighing myself because I you can feel every time I step on a scale, um, uh, I, it's immediately like an emotional drop. And that's not, you know, I, I mean, I let me backtrack a little bit. After my mom died, I definitely had some, um, what's the best word about like disordered eating habits. And I think that I, can, I did a lot of um, controlling of what I ate and compulsive exercising. One, because I couldn't control, because my life was so out of control emotionally. I was such a mess. And this huge thing had just happened that I couldn't control, you know, like, you can't control someone dying and it feels awful that you can't stop it. And the way I channeled my, that first year of like that raw grief where like I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't go to therapy for a long time cause I couldn't even talk about it. Um, but the way I channeled it was by going to weight watchers and, and like that was essentially like a support I think was like, <laughs> like mirroring a like being a support group I would imagine there's a lot of emotional support yeah. in Weight Watchers right? that has nothing to do with weight yes oh I think I, I think completely that's what it was like instead of me going to therapy or a support group I went to fucking Weight Watchers and I threw myself into into doing Weight Watchers because it was like and I this is not to dis I think a lot of people have had success on Weight Watchers whatever but for me I probably you know maybe I could have lost five pounds or whatever I, I lost like 25 pounds. I got really skinny for me. I'm five foot 10 and I probably ended up weighing like 135 pounds, which for my shape is just, it's not, I look at myself now and I'm like, or look at photos then and I'm like, oh God, I look sick. But at the time I was like, yes, this feels amazing. Like I can, I am, it just felt so good to like track it all and have you know like calculate and then see the results it was so satisfying and it, and also a wonderful distraction from the actual like pain that was bubbling everywhere and and also you know exercise was one of the only ways that i could have any sort of release um between like running and yoga which are two things that i still really love but i was doing them all the time because i didn't know what else to do if i wasn't doing them i was just like literally you know like mm. crippled in pain and emotional pain so you don't weigh yourself what what else so well i do i need to st i've realized that i need to stop and i think i also need to stop like trying to track my calories on my fitness pal because i think that ends up starting off as a positive thing and then results in me like feeling shitty like oh shit i ate a tiny easter packet of m&ms today Fuck, you know, like it just, you know, you when you're constantly having to think about what you're eating, if it's a negative association, it just ends up like that just starts mm -hmm. consuming your thoughts. So that, um, and then one thing I also want to do is like waking up every day and just going for a walk, like just exercise, just doesn't have to be compulsive. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like, I, you know, I need to CrossFit and break a sweat, just um, like setting the tone for the day of just like getting up and moving is medit is meditative to me. So I've been thinking about doing that. I like I put my sneakers out before I left tonight, but I know I'm going to be tired. So we'll see girl. what happens. Yeah. But if I don't, if I don't set behaviors for myself, I can really kind of like pendulum swing. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I need, I know, I know what I, you know how it is, you know what you need to do. Mm hmm. But do and it feels good when you do it, 
but what also but what feels even better is not doing it because being in the vicious spiral of self-loathing can just feel so satisfying uh as satisfying as trying to combat it so i i'm i'm trying to do a little bit of like self-work and behavioral work on myself so when you are beating yourself up you got the body image thing yeah what are what are the the other battles in your in your head oh i mean a big one for me is um i like uh creatively you know like everything i write is garbage who you know that like who do i think i am that i could actually achieve this dream that i have oh but everyone else has achieved the dreams and i'm a failure i spent a lot of time like convincing myself i'm a failure um when i'm pretty sure i'm not pretty confident that i'm not but uh the dialogue in my head is that like i'm just an utter loser isn't it crazy how the dialogue in our head can very oscillate between such extremes it it's it crazy can, it can be grandiosity one minute and then self-pitying complete doom yeah the, the next it's very you know i even find just like my personality i'm very shy and i feel so painfully awkward and socially lame and like i am constantly living with my foot in my mouth and no one believes me that I'm shy because I'm out, I'm extroverted, but I have, but the, but you can be a shy extrovert. You know, you can, it, you don't have to be gregarious to be an, I don't, I, I just, is such a struggle, like a huge I dichotomy get, between. I totally get you it. Know, it's, there's, there's all the self. I, I just came from a, um, a support group and there's a, a, actually a business meeting around this, uh, support group. It's a monthly meeting that helps keep the support group running. And, there's, I don't know, maybe 110 people at this, at this meeting. And almost every time this meeting goes on, I have to go down the hallway and just be by myself. And usually for like the last 20 minutes of the meeting, just because it just feels like it just feels soothing mm-hmm. to get away from it from everybody and to just um not be around people and it it seems crazy because yeah i'm a stand-up comedian i you know used to host a television show and i do this podcast and i talk about this and i literally couldn't stand more than a half hour of being and i could have (laughs) just sat quietly in this this business meeting and not said anything but i physically had to get away from people and just have it be more quiet and yeah. it and it but it felt so soothing i felt like um like i had it felt like a little victory oh, like oh look how yes. i managed to car and and as i was sitting there i was thinking um after i do the interview with with kate tonight i i get to go home and i get to watch netflix with all the lights off and put my feet up and eat a bowl of popcorn mm. and maybe watch something about the history of monarchy or, oh. you know, something kind of interesting on, on Netflix. And it just, it gave me a warm feeling to know that I was going to be guaranteed several hours where nobody could bother me. Isn't that the best feeling in the world? It, I, as a mom, I can't imagine how much you cherish those moments. 
I do. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> like, I was like, actually, you know what I've been was looking forward to all day? I was like, I cannot wait to drive to Van to here. I don't yeah. know if we can say where we are. Yeah. To drive to Van to this to Van Nuys to this podcast. I'll have like seventeen minutes in the car. Oh my god. I'll listen to a little bit of Howard Stern in the darkness and like nothing will be better. Like that just sounds so relaxing. It sounds great. What do you do when you're when you know the rest of your day is packed with moments that are the opposite of that, what do you do? You just rally? Do you want to cry? Do you No, you know what? I am in a place so I recently so I worked full time until August and then I, I quit a job I had for seven years. I had worked at VH one and I was a senior producer and an on air host and a writer and it was wonderful, but it had become What was the show? I did like all their, I worked for VH1 News. So mm -hmm. like any interstitial mm -hmm. that ran in between the shows, I was often either on or I produced, um, like I did a lot of celebrity interviews or live streaming from the Oscars and that sort of thing. I'm it, familiar with the interstitial world. You know that world, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, you know that world and, and how amazing it is, how much work goes into a 60 second interstitial. Mm -hmm. So I did that and um, and and it, it had gotten to the point where it was like the dream job but i wasn't happy like i worked for the amazing people and they were so supportive and but it just i was i was i know it just had i had faded and then i took another job i was editor-in-chief of a parenting website and that was supposed to be part-time and that ended up just not working out for me for for many reasons um and so and i had a lot of anxiety about quitting that job i mean this was when my anxiety flared up it flared up because of the job and then quitting it became this huge ordeal. And I was really unhappy and super unhappy. And my husband and I finally determined that I could quit this job and just kind of freelance write and focus on some other writing things and spend more time with my kids. And that, that we could do that right now financially. And so since that has, since that has happened, I started doing that in February. I don't, I wake up and even if I have the busiest thing, I feel so happy. I don't feel ang anxious, panicked, dread, exhausted. I don't feel beholden to my e Like I don't turn and look at my phone and think like, oh shit, what fire is going to be waiting there for me to put out or to burn me? You know, I don't have that. So even when I'm like, I have all this stuff I have to do today. I have, I want to, I'm working on this piece I have, I'm on deadline for, and I have to go to Costco. My kid has swimming and she's going to want to go to the park. And you know, it's all stuff that I feel very content. That's awesome. I feel very content. And I'm so, I'm so grateful that this is my life right now. Like I'm so grateful that tomorrow I have to wake up and I'm just going to be with my kids and work on some writing and then cook a chicken. And my in-laws are coming to town. Like that's, my life and I I 90% of the time I'm so content 10% there's like a demon voice being like you don't have a career anymore like who are you what now that you don't have a title uh, you're a failure but I don't I don't care I think because you know seeing my mom die and seeing what like really is a value in in life is to me is just your fa like is your family and your friend and your friends mm -hmm. and and the relationships and being a kind good person. I think anybody that has experienced the loss of somebody really close to them 
has to come away, if they're paying attention, has to come away with it with a better appreciation for the present moment. I, I, yeah. would, I think if you don't, you really need to go to therapy. Yeah, I think that I value so much more just like sitting and seeing what's happening around mm-hmm. me in that moment. Actually, I think if you can't ap- appreciate the present moment after having been through that, I don't know if there's hope for you to be able <laughs> to, to to at least have moments of appreciating yeah. the, 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 the present moment and connections with, I, with people. I, I think that most most people come out of that with that. I don't think I've ever, you know, I, t- I talk to a lot of people, especially other women who have lost their moms, and I feel like there is a such a changed perspective for them. And I, I actually do find myself getting frustrated with people and I know with people who, I mean, look, they could have gone through their own stuff in life. So who am I to really mm-hmm. judge? But oftentimes like there, there are, when I hear complaints or people, you know, I'm like, who gives a shit? <laughs> who cares? Like it, this is me. It's meaning. It's ultimately meaningless. My mom used to talk a lot about like not wasting my energy on stuff, which was normally like toxic friendships and mm-hmm. girls being mean to each other. And it's the best advice. One that I don't always follow, but it's so, it's so true it's like it's just there's so much energy we expend when we could just be focused on better things and and i believe it's a it's a tool or muscle and the first couple times we do it it's really difficult and there's a lot of agony involved but by the 10th time you cut a toxic person out of your life you're like done yeah where are we going to eat? Yeah, right? You're like, you got this. You mic drop that. Go eat yeah. a burrito. Yeah. I, I def- finally deleted Twitter and Facebook off my phone mm-hmm. because I'm addicted to the internet. I have like a real problem with it. And it's a um, it's a huge distraction for me from doing the things I should be doing. And like for my kids, you know what I mean? Like I would be like sitting trolling Twitter instead of talking to my child. Yeah, that's not good. No, no, not good at all. I mean, it was it's really problematic. And I finally... And also... There were moments where I would get like really mean shit said about me on Twitter and I was like, "You know what? I don't I don't have to do this." Like I don't I like I love Twitter so much and it's been like a huge part of my life, but uh I don't have to stare at it all day. I don't need to know what all everybody you know, all the writers at BuzzFeed who I follow, who I love, I don't need to know what they're doing all day long. And I'm st- and I'm okay. I've survived not knowing. <laughs> um, so it almost seems like a remnant from our high school brain that fear of being left out. It, it 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 there was a lot of that, and also like, who am I if I'm not participating on Twitter and knowing everything that's happening and like doing a the latest bit? Um, like I missed the dress. I didn't get to participate in that, and I was like, oh, that's okay. I don't have to say something about everything. You missed um, what? The dress, you know, if, is it blue or is it gold or blue and black? Oh, see, now you really, you live a blessed life. What? Did, what? I honestly don't know what okay, you're talking about. There was a giant meme that blew up about two months ago where on Tumblr, a woman posted a picture of a dress and she's like, my friends and I are freaking out. I have this picture of this dress that I want to buy. And there, some people are saying it's blue and black and other people are saying it's gold and black or gold and gray or something. And it became like an internet phenomenon in part because Buzzfeed posted about it and that went super viral. And it's just like some optical illusion thing with your eye. But 
I I remember. Like, who cares? This I, is I remember seeing one one person post something about the color of a dress that that I remember thinking is is this something that's widely known? And then I I, I moved on. And it on. is. And you're fine not knowing. Like this is, I think, the hard part about social media is that you missed it and you're fine and you still are an active participant in life and i'm sure in like social causes like you have healthy relationships you act like you're functioning doesn't matter if you know about this stupid i mean we're wasting so much time i am wasting i've been wasting so much time on that stuff and i'm trying not to i made a kind of a conscious decision i think um about the second or third maybe the fourth or fifth year that 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 I was here in Los Angeles and when I first started doing the the TV show I think I had a, a hope that it was going to keep me moving up and up and up and when it didn't happen I also combined with the fact that I realized after about the first year I don't really like being on television yeah I don't like the pressure of I like making people laugh, but but the pressure of trying to make people laugh in an environment where so many things are out of your control, as opposed to stand up where you control ninety nine percent of them, I realized I don't like that, and it fills me with anxiety, and I can't watch myself on TV, and I get depressed if I do a bad joke that I know a million people are going to watch, and I, I I just began to realize I will never be fulfilled by this and I don't have the energy to read the trades to do all of that stuff so I'm just gonna kind of do what I have to the bare minimum and hope that I survive Mm -hmm. and I haven't regretted it yet like um, when I shared with Kulop uh, Vilaisak that I she talked about deadline Mm. and I didn't know what it was and she was like in a way, she was jealous yeah. that that I wasn't wrapped up in it like she was, um, and it's it's really nice. But there are also times when y- you get a feeling of panic. Yeah, when oh, I get a totally. feeling of panic, like, am I going to be seventy and be fucking trying to eat corn without <laughs> teeth and saying? Why didn't I try to stay more connected in my industry? Why? Oh God, I fucked up. I fucked up. But those thoughts are are fleeting yeah, and and few and know. far between. But wouldn't it be great if we knew exactly how hard we had to work in our field to survive, so we could just dial it back to that exact yes. amount and spend the rest of the time enjoying life. Enjoying life. How do we do that? I. I I, I, you just everything you just said just resonated with me so much because I went through the same thing, of like, oh, this isn't truly bringing me joy, even though I've been told it's, I've been telling myself it's supposed to. Yeah, I, I don't like this. I used to think something was wrong with me. Yeah, because, well, also in your position, we're told like if you're on TV, that's the greatest thing that could happen to you. Yeah, um, and, and that doesn't mean that there weren't parts 
about being on it that were great. Totally. I loved the people I work with, loved getting flown to New York and getting to go to, out to a yeah. fancy restaurant and or, you know, occasionally somebody asking for my autograph or things like that. But there were so many things to it, you know, like, like, do, having to do a photo shoot, you're holding a giant <laughs> fork, and they're telling, and you're incredibly depressed, and you're supposed to smile for eight straight oh hours God, while they take your so picture, much. and you just feel like, what, why, why can't I? What is the matter with me? Yeah, what's wrong with me? What is yeah, wrong with I me? I know, I know, and the answer is like not actually. You're what's it's what's right about you, right? I mean, that's like I guess, I, but I don't feel that way about doing this no this is fulfilling and i wonder is it because i'm able to control so much of it or because i get a feeling of meaning and purpose from from doing this do you think this is closer to your authentic self much much because i think that's so much of so much of like my process creatively is like what who am what is most authentic to me not what am i good at but like what is because i bet you because you're great at hosting but keep, it wasn't like you're you're the perfect person. Keep going. Uh, but you know what I mean. Like this is who you. You that ended way too quick. Okay, sorry. Hold on. Let me get. Let me backtrack. This podcast is the best ever. <laughs> but I think it's interesting just hearing you talk about like you, what you're good at, even I, if it doesn't fulfill you, and yes. then you have to f- grapple with that. Like that has been a struggle for me recently. Of like, I was in the same thing. Like I liked interviewing people. I liked writing about this these things but it it became less and less fulfilling to the point where i resented it and then i felt guilty for resenting it because i had such like a cush great situation of like yeah. a really wonderful job with amazing coworkers, and i and i was not happy and i was mad at myself that i wasn't happy somebody should teach little kids that it's just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it I, that is such a um like such a true powerful statement i mean it's wonderful to be good at something and to do it but you shouldn't have to i think most of us are are good at multiple things yes and there are things we're good at that don't fulfill us and things that we're we're good at that do fulfill us and probably things that we're not that great at that fulfill us yeah oh that's the story of my life go to an arts and crafts fair right you see so much of it you see so much of it yeah well i play in a basketball league and I had never played basketball before mm-hmm. until July, and I just started learning how to play. And it's like the most probably besides being a mom and and a you know a wife and and a writer, it's like the most fulfilling thing of my life is basketball. It's given me so much. I'm not great. I still don't know what the hell I'm doing, but it's just the the best. Talk talk about what you love about it. Oh, I love. Give I me mean, some. Give me some moments. I. I well one the physical aggression I love like I love getting to be you know when as a woman you aren't really ever given the space to be aggressive that's not really celebrated with women like even exercise I've like you know done a lot of yoga but like in this I am fucking like but to badge with women like pushing them out of the paint and you're 5'10 and I'm 5'10 and I will tell you you know I have suffered so much in my life because of my height. I have felt terrible about myself because I've been this tall forever. You know, like I was never short. I was never adorable. I've always been tall and huge and felt embarrassed that I've never been able, like I've never been good at sports. Um, And where I come from, I come from kind of a really affluent town outside of Boston where your social 
the social structure is like built on the, who's good at soccer and lacrosse. And I was not, I was never good at it. And, and I never tried because I was so af- afraid of embarrassing myself. Um, so to learn that, like to feel for my height to be powerful and a positive thing, it's, this is literally the first time it's ever been positive for me in my life. Like I had a moment, I, we had a game on Tuesday and like I got the rebound and I just held the ball above my head and no one could touch me. And then I like, you know, just dropped it in. How awesome did that and feel? And it felt, I was like, yes, I am a huge and no one can get near me. Like this is the best. And it's just been, you know, just the com- the competition. I have felt myself get like raging, r- raging mad and passionate about something to the point where I've cried, you know, like I, I have just been swept up on it. I am learning something. And also like to do something where, you know, you're going to fail. Like there's no question that I'm going to fail at basketball and to have to do it and have people depend on, you know, it just mm-hmm. puts a lot of my fears out there and to just like deal with them has been incredible. Sports are a microcosm oh of, of life. And it, you learn so much about other people by the way they compete. Yeah. You learn so much. It's fascinating. And I love playing with that line of how far can you go in your aggression to where it's still socially acceptable (laughs) to be doing what you're doing. It's very interesting with women. Mm -hmm, I bet. The women who I play against, I mean, and a lot of them are in the general like comedy community and a lot of them are. I mean, it's a whole mix of people. But you just see these people who you know, like, uh, like you know, people I like am in book club with or on stage with, and then all of a sudden they're like the toughest boss bitches I have ever seen, mm-hmm. and it's really, um, it's been inspiring. I mean, it's just, am- it's just amazing. It's, it's really been um, life changing for me. Yeah, and I had no idea. You know, I had like really bought into the narrative I've put out there about how I'm like I'm bad at sports. I can't do sports. And I was like, oh, no, maybe I might be. Why have I not tried this for Mm -hmm. 35 years? Just because I said, you know, once I believed I was terrible at sports, which kind of makes me sad, actually. It's, you know, girls didn't play sports when I was growing up. There was one girl in my, um, that played in our hockey league, and her name was Angel, and she wasn't good at all. (laughs) And, but... You know, we would let her her practice with us and, you know, everybody, she was a nice enough person, but there was no, um, like, oh, you know, we're going to, we're going to pass the puck to her. She's going to make a good play. And then when I moved to LA and I started playing hockey, we get these Canadian girls that would come out and play with us and they were every bit as good as the guys. And it was a revelation to me. And I, and I really began to, um, realize how backwards I had been in my thinking and it's one of my favorite things now is is if I'm playing on a team and there's a woman on our on our team and she's good and it never being mentioned that she's a woman that she's just we're sitting in the locker room and we're talking about a great pass that this person made or she made a terrible pass and we're busting her balls about it you know I I that's like one of my favorite things because I can see the world changing. I can see the arc of the world changing. It's been really when I go and scrimmage, a bunch of women meet up at a at a uh, court in L.A. and we men stare. I mean, people just come and stare at us because I think they don't know what 
to make of the fact that there are just women playing basketball. Even though the fascinating part is my league has now ballooned to t- like 24 teams. Like there are so many wow, women. Wow, that's a big league. It's, it's, yeah, it was started as three, I think like maybe a year ago. And it's just, holy shit. It. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's been crazy. Yeah. And so it, it's, um, I think they just don't, I mean, there are so many women who know how to play and who are good. And then people like me who had never played, but women who want to do it. And I think it's so interesting going to these courts where so many men like don't know what to make of us or there are on on the other hand, so many men who will just like play pickup and not care, which is when it's really kind of like exciting and empowering for Mm -hmm. me because I'm so I've been so scared of men my whole life to be like, oh, I'm on this like weird equal playing field. Is there anything better than making a good pass? I mean, making a yeah. nice shot is good. Scoring a, a you know, sinking a basket or, or scoring goal in hockey is nice. But for me, the the older I get, the more I appreciate the one. Well, you know, being an improv person, yeah. setting somebody oh, up I love for that. the home run. That's such a good feeling. Yeah, that is a good. Fe- I mean, I think that's a special kind of person who can actually who appreciates that over being the like the star. You know, the having the star moment. But yeah, I mean, for me the most gratifying part is when I'm able to run down the court yeah. and not die and and maybe even beat somebody. I'm like, Oh, I can be here. You know, like I, I, I can be here to meet, you know, to actually support someone who's coming. Do you feel like it has helped your self-esteem off the court? Yes. I mean, that's what I'm thinking about my body image stuff. What I've been thinking about lately is when do I feel good about myself? And it's like when I am being physically strong after a basketball game, I feel awesome in my body. You know, when I step on the scale, I feel terrible in my body. It's the same both times, but like, you know, basketball has made me feel, I feel so strong and powerful and like just awesome. And what a great uh, example for your daughters to see that the girls can be aggressive and. Yeah. They come to games. Yeah. And I, and also, you know, I mean, part of it for me is like, they're both going to be giants because my husband is 6'2", I'm 5'10", and my kids are off the growth charts. I mean, they're like 90th, 95th percentile. And I want them to love being tall because I've hated it my whole life. Like I've, I've true, it has like truly, I've spent a lot of time agonizing about it and it's affected like my confidence and how I interacted, you know, sexually as a teenager and all those things. And I don't want it to be a hindrance for them. I want them, I want it to empower them. So if that's athletically great, I also think like you can play a sport and not be amazing at it. Like it'd be so great if culturally we were just like, Hey everybody, let's just, it doesn't matter if you're the best. We can just like play and have fun. I feel like so much of it is having to succeed I've at already, it. I've already got your daughters getting scholarships in my brain. So Look, the do, pressure's on. My the, husband went to Carolina. Does oh he God. want them to go play basketball at Carolina? A hundred percent. Like that's his life. So they're just going to wind up losing to UConn. I know. Well, they maybe they could go to UConn. Yeah. Like, look, they're the. They're, Would he aren't. be able to handle that? Yeah, as long as they don't go to Duke, it's fine. But you know, that's his dream. He's like, I got to get basketballs in their hands, and we do. We like try to go and play. And my daughter, you know, I just, I guess, I just want them to feel good about themselves, no matter what they do. I don't care. Um, but having something that just like brings you joy and makes you feel positive mm-hmm. about who you are—that's all that. That's why, like, I don't know. I think success is overrated a bit. I do too. I do too. I don't think it brings you much happiness ultimately. I just wish I could allow that to sink completely sink into my brain because my fear of the future 
is so uh, so won't go into the back seat permanently. Totally. It just keeps coming up and grabbing the wheel and going, but we're not going to be okay in 15 years. But I bet you will. I feel like, I mean, I'm way too have bought into like the hippie LA woo-woo thing. Part of me feels like the stuff that brings you joy will eventually give you that success that that thing that you're on a good day that you're not having on a good day i feel that and i believe that to my to my core but on a bad day i know i'm like oh i'm i'm just i'm gonna be like in one of those uh like state wards (laughs) they don't know what to do with old people you know because i don't have kids so it's gonna be like we'll take care of you yeah somebody is is just gonna wheel me into an alley and go oh oh that's the alley where they dump the old people yeah this is where you are now yeah your medicaids run out here you go yeah you should have thought about your ira a little bit more should have worked a little harder shouldn't have taken so many naps that's one of the biggest fear naps yeah that's it that's gonna be the thing that gets you in the end and my laziness just my pure outright outright laziness is laziness real though? I feel a lot of times like I convince myself I'm lazy too, but is that just you making yourself feel bad about self care? I think it's a lack of inspiration yeah, because I when know. I'm inspired, like the furniture that you uh, pointed out, I was excited to make this furniture. A tree fell down, and I was like, I I can't wait to make that into something. And so you know, I worked six seven hours yeah. a day making this. Because I was moved by the idea of what it would look like. Um, I haven't woodworked really since then. And the, the mean part of my brain is like, well, it's because you're lazy. Right. But then the the kind of healed part of my brain says, you're just not inspired to woodwork. No, you haven't you... been inspired to woodwork lately. Give your give yourself a break. But You want to sit in the dark and watch Netflix. That's the, that's the only thing that I can const- consistently feel passionate about and it doesn't feel like sandpaper. That sounds so like that's what you need to do then, right? I mean, oh, I'm doing it. You doing, yeah, I know, I know. I'm, doing I'm it. envious of you. Yeah. But I think that's, I don't know, what's the answer? But does it better my life? Maybe it, you don't need to always be bettering your life. I had such, I remember I had such anxiety after my mom died about being a comedian and doing comedy and I like got applications to go to social work school. Actually, this is like while she was sick. I was like, what? The, like, what is the purpose of performing improv in a fucking under a grocery store? Like, in a, you know, the mm-hmm. UCB in New York is under a grocery store. It's like, why am I? This is meaningless. You know, like I should really be out changing lives being a social worker. And then thankfully, I was like, oh, God, no, I would be. I don't want to be a social worker. But someone said to me like, oh, actually, like you have no like going on stage and being funny and bringing that joy to people like you, that is a way of helping people Absolutely. and healing people. And, and, you know, like that is a form of, you can find those things yeah. in, not you because you're a terrible performer, but I'm a monster again. Yeah, you're a monster. Let me reiterate the yeah, voice, but somebody with talent, yeah. they bring joy to people. Yeah. Yeah. Someone who's actually good somebody at who's, it. Let's be honest. Somebody who's even relatively competent. Well, that person's having a lot of success, whereas I am, yeah, forever going to be a failure. Well, you're a creature out on the basketball court, <laughs> moving your big lizardy tail around. My giant five foot ten tail, <laughs> oh, misery. What have we missed? You know, I think it's really interesting. I was we haven't like, talked about your childhood, but for some reason, I, I, um, can you tell my I had a good childhood? I don't know. It just uh, 
for some reason, I just wanted to, in this interview, maybe because I feel like we've been talking about childhoods too much in episodes, I I just kind of wanted to know about your your life in the present. I, my childhood to me was, I mean, I had, you know, patches of misery, but I actually had a great, I come from like a, such an, a wonderful family with two really grounded parents who I think did a wonderful job raising us. And I don't, you know, I went to a great, wonderful, all women's school where I grew very confident. And I, you know, I, I, Where'd you go? I went to a school called Dana Hall in mm-hmm. Wellesley, Massachusetts. High school or college? Um, middle and high school. And then okay. I went to college in Maine at Bates College. Okay. And so I, I don't, you know, I, I, my, my, when I think, when my mom used to always joke about how I was going to have to go to therapy and talk about my parents, but they aren't the, they, I mean, now they are my fucking dead mom, but. Um, Your mom's dead? Have I mentioned that? Did you know? I wasn't paying <laughs> you, attention. You did see my did cancer-causing you? t-shirt that what I'm wearing? Ha- what happened? You know, let me let me get back into it. My wife and I do that bit. We when we're out at dinner with people that that don't know us sometimes. <laughs> I'll pretend I don't know that her mom died. Oh, that's and, amazing and evil. Yeah, and uh, and she'll say, "Oh yeah, yeah, she uh, she died about fifteen years ago," and be like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." Well, hopefully it wasn't anything that was painful. She's oh, like, "Oh no, god. it was actually it was cancer." Oh my god, I'd be that's like, amazing. "Oh my god, that's how terrible. long have you guys been together?" Twenty seven years. So she died while you were with your wife. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, and I was heartbroken when she died. Sure. I loved her. Yeah. I loved, but she had the fucking greatest sense of humor. Her mom, she loved when we would swear. So like when she would call to talk mm-hmm. to her daughter, my you know my my wife, she, she, uh, she I'd say Carla, it's for you, and Carla, would, and I'd say it's that fucking cunt, <laughs> and I would hear her mom wheezing with laughter on the other line. We we helped her move. Uh, when my wife moved in with me, her mom helped us move, and <laughs> my buddy who was helping us didn't know that he loved that. Uh, my mother-in-law loves when we swear and so the three of us are moving this futon my mother-in-law my friend and me and i looked at my mother-in-law and holding the futon and i said i can't wait to blow some loads on this baby (laughs) (laughs) look on my friend's face and of course she started wheezing with that's like laughter i would say like cunt is one thing but say, talking about blowing loads yeah. to your mother-in-law is yeah. impressive yeah uh, my was... in-laws are evangelical christians and they're the oh my. they're the most wonderful people in the world but like i don't i don't even say like damn it in front of them yeah. so blowing loads like yeah. that's the ultimate that's the best mother-in-law was, in the she world she was the best she was the best i i felt more like a son to her than yeah. i ever did my my own mom and it was yeah it was it was really tough when when she went but um so your mom died? I mean, yeah, I'll get into it again. She did. She did. She had pancreatic cancer. I'll uh, I'll rewind this part and I'll pay attention. <laughs> Thank you. I'll appreciate. It. Yeah, listen to your podcast. A so bit. yeah, the the childhood was uh, it was it was good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel really grateful for my childhood. I mean, ultimately, there. Are, look, I could get into many things from my childhood, but I. That's not the crux. I think of of who I am, or like the, that, that, that's not what there's not a destroyed smoking gun. me. Yeah, no, there's not a no, smoking gun. Not at all. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think ultimately like the most defining moment in my life is losing my mother 
And I was thinking recently, because I've been writing a lot about it, that I would not be this person if she hadn't died. Like that her, that the greatest, the greatest gift she probably gave me was her death because it's allowed me to so much perspective and a, a different view on life. And it's ta- it's allowed me to probably be the mom I am and to value that more. And it's given me, you know, I hate to be like, it's given me topics to write about, but I feel like I'm at my most authentic self Mm -hmm. when I'm writing about loss and grief and motherhood. And I wouldn't know, you know, I wouldn't know that without that her, that sacrifice of hers. You know, I, I just feel like, you know, it was, it's taught me. So, I mean, it's the worst, like, would I give anything to have her back? Yeah. But I would just be, I don't know who I would be if I hadn't gone through that. And I, I don't, you know, it's like one of those sliding door things of like, who knows? So I think about that a lot. Did you want to uh, trade any fears or loves before we go? Did I write a bunch? Yes. Well, bring you want to see them? They're bring them. I realized, like, as I was reading through them, all my fears are about, like, serial killers raping me or something bad <laughs> happening to my kids. That's <laughs> basically what I spend all my time agonizing about. Okay. Do I start? You start. Okay. I'm just, go- yeah, just go, just go, and if I think of one, I'll, I'll inject one. Okay, these are my fears. I'm afraid that every throwaway thing I do or say to my kids will become one of those pivotal, life-changing moments they remember in detail forever, or worse, is something that destroys their spirit or has a profound negative effect on who they become. I fear that cancer is coming for me because I saw my mom's quick, awful death and because it feels inevitable, like it's already sitting inside my body, just waiting for the perfect moment to show up and ruin everything. Let's see. I fear for my daughters in general for the sexual harassment and other grief they will endure simply because they are women. I fear that I'm passing on my body issues to my daughters. They will suffer the same crippling self-esteem issues and will also be extraordinarily tall and miserable because of it. I fear all of my Twitter DMs will accidentally become public and people will discover what a terrible human being I truly am in private. That's a big one for me. For people that don't know, uh, DMs are direct messages on Twitter where nobody else hopefully can see what you're writing. No, but you know that like fear that somehow like magically the the blanket will be pulled away and your awful guts will be revealed. Uh That's what that feels like. Let's see. Uh, I'm afraid that I'll never be able to stop listening to the negative voices in my head, stopping me from believing in myself that maybe they will win and I'll never accomplish what I want to do. I also fear that they might be right. I fear not just that I have passed on my anxiety and OCD issues to my kids, but that they won't have the language or understanding to articulate what's happening to them until it's already damaged them. I fear what my relationship with my daughters will look like when they are teenagers I fear the time they stop loving me and stop wanting my love. I can't see that. Somebody like you, I, I, I honestly. I hope so. I mean, boy, I went through periods of hating my mom, and my mom is like a was the best mom. But ugh, you hate them for like a minute. You know, even if they did have that fourteen to sixteen year old, yeah, maybe 18. embarrassed by your mom. Uh, you know feel like she's the the bad cop somebody as self-aware um as as you are i just don't see that ever happening thank you 
let's talk again in 12 years. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back on this podcast. (laughs) Let's see. Uh, I'm afraid that someone I trust and welcome into my life will turn out to be a serial killer and that I've stupidly already let my guard down and signaled that I am an easy target. Uh, That's awful and some and awful and awesome at the same. That's awful some. I mean, literally anytime I meet someone new, I'm like, this might be the person who's going to come into my house. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of killer anxiety. Uh, let's see. I fear that I'll never be able to stop apologizing and that I will forever make myself small in order to make other people feel big, even when it makes me sick to do so. I fear that I'm disconnected spiritually and I'm missing out on a great relationship with God. That's a big one. Do you believe in God? No, I don't do. I know. I, I, I don't. I don't. You believe there's, there's anything? I mean, like, I I don't believe in the God, God. I don't believe in the religion god but i believe that there's a force in the universe a benevolent force that doesn't spare us pain but has a path for us where the pain has a payoff if we hang in there that's so interesting i don't know if i believe that but i do believe in the like cyclical circular connection of all things like i i my mom was very into birds and her mother was very into nature and I, I've recently like started kind of reading a little bit about like Emerson and transcendentalism, um, which is connected to Unitarian Universalism. So ultimately, maybe I'll start going to church. But I do really kind of mostly just believe in nature. Like I feel very at peace when I'm in my yard and like a hummingbird comes, and that to me is like a moment with my mom. Mm-hmm. That makes and that and that's like a bigger. That feels like a very big thing for me. But I don't believe in like. Christ is my savior and I need to accept Christ. My my daughter goes to a Jewish preschool mm-hmm. and she actually thinks we're Jewish and like gets mad if we try to tell her that we're not. And we like <laughs> explain like you we actually have to go through a lot if we want to really be Jewish. But I've learned like the traditions of Judaism I just love and and she feels really connected to them and very like has a lot of kind of just this interesting spirit about it and I and so I, I think religion is interesting and I love tradition and ritual, but I don't, I don't, I think like organized religion scares, scares most me. Most of it, most of it scares yeah. me. There's, there's some good ones out there, but most of it scares yeah, me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm wary of anything that has a hierarchy because it's always winds up getting exploited. I, I just feel like I don't see a lot of the good that it does. But I think, and I think that in, I just kind of believe inherently humans are good and we should be of service. Mm-hmm. to each other and that's enough i believe that but only if it's on camera well yeah i mean look holding that giant uh, fork how, <laughs> how else are you going to get credit that's right how yeah. else is anyone going to know who you yeah. are uh give me one more fear okay. and then uh, let's do some loves oh let's see this is a Okay, this is kind of a specific one, but I'm afraid the one neighbor I hear screaming at his family all the time will one day snap, barge into my house, and kill my family. <laughs> I like that he yells at his family, but he's not going to kill them. No, he's I mean, gonna, <laughs> this is such a narcissistic come. thing, right? He's going to be like, oh, my family can live. I'll go down the street to the neighbor, that neighbor lady. The guy, somebody cuts me off on the on the highway. I'm going to shoot the car behind them. I mean, them. isn't that so self-absorbed? But I do have the fear of like, 
someone snaps and yes. I'm somehow involved. I'm somehow yeah. just there and the snapping involves me. I and that it. and that like makes me ill. Anyway, I do like things. Do you want should I tell you yeah. the things I love? Okay. A few of these are kind of new. I was thinking about New York. Uh, I love getting off the subway in New York City, the feeling of being underground and emerging, and every spot in the city feels like a completely new place. Sometimes the city smacks you in the face, and other times coming out of the subway feels like a sigh. It, it, New York, to me, is just feels like limitless possibilities. I love it. I mean, I lived there for 10 years. I lo- LA is where I should be, but mm. New York is like in my bones. It's the prox having so many exciting things in close proximity is what's so nice. Like LA, it's like, ah, eh, that'd be 40 minutes to get there. But yeah. New York, it's like everything is within pretty much 15, yeah. 15 minutes, and if not five. Like, and everything is, ex- there's just like, you never know you're going to turn the corner and there's just this weird magical thing happening or something you've never seen before or art that's popped up. It's just a, such a weird there's nowhere like New York. I mean, let's be real. It's yeah. the best city. I mean, LA's fine. I, I always would feel guilty when I would take a nap when I was in New York. I'd be like, I'm missing you something. Should. I'm missing something. You can't watch Netflix at night in New York. <laughs> you are failing living in the city. Now you should. That's the worst part about New York is that my husband and I would be like, we've just spent all our time like sitting at home. We aren't like, you know, you feel this guilt mm-hmm. for not like going to art museums all day long. But what are you going to do? Let's see. This is another New York one. I love walking around New York, listening to music on your headphones, and the music becomes a soundtrack, and you start to walk and act like you are in the movie of your life. Oh, that's a great that's one. The best feeling. Uh, I love egg and cheese sandwiches on a bagel from a bodega. I love the smell of my cat's breath. Um, I love the birds who gather in my yard because they are how I connect to my mom's spirit. Sometimes one will stay a little longer at the bird feeder or come sit in my porch, and I almost believe it's her way of visiting me from the beyond. That's beautiful. Thank you. I do feel that way. You're a monster, but that's beautiful. <laughs> I'm a monster, but occasionally I say something <laughs> nice. Hold on. What's annoying me is that these didn't... Okay, there we go. Hold on. Ah, Okay. This is very specific, but I love walking out of fish shows. Fish is my favorite band, especially on very cold winter nights. Inside the stadium, everything is hot and everyone is exhausted and happy. And you're in this giant mass of sweaty human bodies. And then you just spill out into the night and never see any of those people again. It's intimate and anonymous and wonderful. How many times have you seen them? Like uh, over a hundred. Really? Yeah, yeah. They're like a huge part of my life. That's awesome. Yeah. It's fish is like the best thing sounds like that's your religion it, it kind of is i have like a few religions uh that are all either bands or who are the other bands no no you know fish i'm a i'm a lifelong fan of the howard stern show and howard that's like been a huge um ritual for me mm-hmm. like i just listen to howard stern all day long and participate in that community and then yoga has been very life-changing for me although less so I kind of have moved away from it a bit. But every Mm -hmm. time I revisit it, it just feels like, oh, yes, this is the place I can come back to all the time. And then the Boston Red Sox, which is one of these things. I mean, I have so I basically just love being in spaces that make me feel emotional. This is a Red Sox one. Hold on. I'm going to say one here. Let's see. Uh, I love in the movie Twilight when Edward and Bella are walking in the parking lot outside of Forks High School and he puts his arm around her and makes a cocky face and has his sunglasses on. 
And I also love when Mr. Darcy comes walking through the field at the end of the most recent Pride and Prejudice movie, because basically I love hot dudes making desperate romantic entrances. (laughs) I love that you were unafraid to have a fangirl moment about Twilight. I mean, my online life for the past five years has been very much about Twilight. I covered it for work and I truly love it. And like I had a I have a lot of Twitter followers who are Twilight fandom people and I've met and like become friends with people in the Twilight fandom and like consider myself an active member. I read a lot of fan fiction. I have written fan fiction and then taken it down. I mean like Twilight is I'm unabashedly love Twilight. What is it? I love ro- I love romance. I love romantic comedy. I love that feeling of being like swept away in pure love that doesn't truly exist in the real world. And there's something specifically about that moment. Like it's just the it's just their relationship. I mean, I, I know I know it's kind of like emotional porn. Yes, isn't it? yes, yes. I mean, that's all I'm. I'm that's like my life. I love. Yeah. That's what I'm so into. And I'm I'm a feminist and. A, a very progressive liberal woman and I understand all the critiques of Twilight and I and also all the critiques of other things I like like the Howard Stern show and I don't care Twilight brings me great joy and I truly love it and and human beings are fucking complicated yeah they are yeah they you, know? and you can have an, an an intellectual understanding of something and still have it move you mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of <laughs> that explains that yeah. hopefully explains why I really deeply love Twilight. Give me one more. Okay. I love looking at houses for sale in Redfin in random cities I'll never live in, like Portland, Oregon. I was just doing that last week. I mean, is it not so soothing? Yeah, it's so soothing, especially because, uh, you know, with the droughts getting worse, I keep thinking everybody's going to be rushing up to the Northwest. Are we all going to leave? Is that what's going to happen? I don't know, but... It's kind it's of scary. Kind of, it is it's scary. It's getting a l- little apocalyptic-y yeah. in, in And California. also the denial is like, God, I drive around and just there's so much grass. So much grass. And so many sprinklers pouring water into my the streets. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what are, what are we doing? Guys, like, what We're, are we doing? Are we sleeping while Godzilla is uh, coming up out of the sea? That's kind of what it feels. It feels so terrible. And I feel like they aren't doing enough... Uh, like Jerry Brown's announcement, I was like, this is it? This is all we're doing? I don't know. Yeah. It's really terrifying. But we should all move to Portland, Oregon. It's beautiful yeah. and green. The how houses re- are... How resentful. And I love Portland. I fucking love mm-hmm. Portland. And those housing prices, you can get a three-bedroom, 2,000 2, square feet. That's big. Well, well we got to wrap this up and go buy some... I know. <laughs> go i got to go put my house on the market. I know. Kate Spencer, thank you so much. It was, uh, you did not disappoint. I feel like I've I, rambled a n- lot. Not at all. The, I, I felt like this was very uh, conversational, and I I, in, I certainly enjoy the ones where I kind of sit back, and it's, this person has this life that unfolds that is cinematic and crazy and dramatic, and then I love the ones where maybe it's not as dramatic and it's just more of a conversation. And I hadn't had one of those in a while. Oh, I'm so glad. And so I, I enjoyed this. I felt like I had stuff that I needed to, um, that was kind of bubbling under the surface with me. And I enjoy the episodes where I don't feel like I was 
interrupt interrupting the cinema oh. to uh inject my shit into it so it, it felt very very nice oh to well me. i'm grateful this podcast is a real yeah. has done a real service for me yeah. but you're still a monster that's true <laughs> <laughs> oh i really enjoyed talking to uh to kate be sure to follow her on on uh on twitter if you're not following her already uh i believe uh it's at kate spencer i think i think that's it i'll put a link to it on our uh, website Anyway, um, before I get to some surveys, and we've got a pretty big stack of surveys, I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and make a one-time PayPal donation or a recurring monthly donation uh, for as little as five bucks a month, and it um, no amount is too small. It, uh, it all makes a difference and helps keep the podcast running. And, um, yeah, I greatly appreciate it. You can also shop at Amazon through our search portal and, uh, they'll give me, a um, a couple of nickels. It won't cost you anything. So if you're going to buy something at Amazon, just enter through the, the, uh, Amazon search box on our homepage and you can also go funk yourself. I didn't know. I wasn't sure if you knew that that was an option because I took it off the menu for a, a couple of weeks, but it's right there. It's underneath actually at the bottom of the menu under sides, um, yeah, there's a little asterisk because it is vegan. Uh, big heaping ladle of go fuck yourself. I am so tired of myself right now, and I'm going to have to hear myself read 45 minutes of surveys. Let's see how this goes. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Isa, I-S-A. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported. Oh, she's uh, she's straight and she's 19. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Um, and I'm just reading portions of her, her uh, survey. She writes, um, my mom has cried in front of me so many times. Her, her parents have a terrible relationship and she's experienced a lot of uh, sexual, uh, sexual trauma. Um, and... Uh, drugs and and self-harm um anyway she writes uh, my mom has cried in front of me so many times and told me all about her suicidal thoughts i really thought it was normal oh and here's the kicker my mom is a fucking psychologist i feel angry about the emotional abuse uh i feel robbed of a childhood i feel robbed of any role models of healthy relationships i'm angry that i thought this was normal i'm also just really sad that my parents have these lives and they are so unhappy i've also found that because of my emotionally distant father i tend to gravitate towards emotionally abusive men who exert their power over me by finding the weakest most insecure parts of me to classify as me classify me as crazy it's hard to meet guys without wondering in the back of my mind is he going to be abusive too and so far that's been the case any positive experiences with uh, your abusers um i love my mom and i still love my dad i wish that i could categorize them as evil monsters and cut them out of my life completely but i still feel the need to protect them i am i still am hyper vigilant with my mom's behavior and have to be the adult in every situation but i love her she's a smart strong hilarious woman but i also can't ignore all the shitty things she's done darkest thoughts i sometimes still i sometimes think about dropping out of college and becoming a drug addict and dying young I don't really want that, but it just seems a little less stressful. 
darkest secrets. I work as a mental health advocate, and I put myself out there as this beacon of hope for other people, but I have continued to cut myself sporadically over the past two years when I have been in, quote, recovery. I'm afraid that people will find out that I am a fraud. I'm afraid that I will realize that I really am, capital letters, crazy, and I have something broken inside of me which will never be fixed. I think having a battle inside you is just the opposite of making you a fraud. You know, if anything, I think somebody that has never experienced mental or emotional um, difficulties um, is closer to being a fraud than somebody who is uh, struggling silently with uh, with something. And you don't have to completely have your life together to, to be of service to somebody and help them. Um, so uh, put put that baseball bat down and give yourself uh, some credit and uh, and a hug. You've been through a lot, and you you sound like a really um, a really compassionate uh, a really compassionate young lady. Um, let's see. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I finished porn. Uh, where the girl in the video is calling the guy daddy. Uh, despite never having any sexual thoughts about my dad and nothing sexually inappropriate or even questionable, I feel the need to be dominated sexually in a really violent way. I'm disgusted with myself and these desires anyway. Um, let that go. You're not hurting anybody. And uh, that happens to be something that turns you on. We have no control over what turns us on. And uh, you can spend the rest of your life wishing that what turned you on was different, or you can fucking embrace it and have some good hard orgasms. So the choice is yours. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I could have a different brain and a normal brain. I wish I was vapid and easy to deal with. I wish I wasn't so passionate and overwhelming. I wish I was small and weak, but I'm not. And you wouldn't be as much help to people if you were all of those things that you wished that you were because you wouldn't be able to identify with their struggles. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? Sad, but less heavy. Well, sending you some love. Sending you a hug. This is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Sarita. And her, her uh, issues are anxiety, depression, ADHD, addiction, food, body image, and mania. Just those. Just those things. Uh, what's helped her? Breathing, being of service, prayer and meditation, finding support, especially in 12-step programs. Uh, what has somebody said to you uh, that has helped you with your issues, uh, said or done? Uh, she writes, when my family was going through a huge crisis last year, we had my two nephews living with us because their mother was dying of heroin addiction, and our own two kids were also having a hard time, and we were trying to work, buy a house, etc., my husband and I were fighting. It was a very dark time. A woman told me, this is just a chapter in the book. For some reason, I was able to hear her. I never thought the darkness and hopelessness would pass, and it did. That's awesome. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mooney, and she writes, the moment I realized my boyfriend was more in love with one of my alter personalities than me. Like, what the fuck do you even do about that? cry, laugh, eat half a dozen maple frosted donuts and lie face down on the floor numbly for hours because that's what I did. 
Oh, uh, by the way, I just posted a, a guest blog about what it's like to live with uh, dissociative identity disorder, uh, also known as multiple personality uh, disorder. And it's a fascinating read, so go to the uh, the homepage. And if it's not up on the homepage anymore, just uh, in the search box on the website, type in uh, DID, and it should uh, it should come up. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Boop Boop De Boop. She is in her 20s, straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, during my childhood, my siblings constantly bullied and tormented me and it went ignored by my parents, but she's not sure if she was emotionally uh, abused. Uh, my parents were severely critical and intrusive. Not sure if that counts, but past therapy therapists have called it emotional abuse. I'd say anybody with a pulse and a brain would call that emotional abuse, but you're doing what we all do, which is you're minimizing it. And I get it. I get it. But, um, you know, in my opinion, healing really starts the moment we give weight to what happened to us. And I I hope you can do that um, because you deserve the compassion that you're keeping on the other side of that wall, that wall of minimizing any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I do love my family, but they created a lot of emotional turmoil for me throughout my life, and I've struggled with PTSD because of the damage it caused. Look at that! Isn't that amazing? That that she, you know that she can admit that there's PTSD, but we're so reticent to you know quote unquote throw our parents under the bus which we're really not we're just giving weight to what we felt but we feel like we're throwing them under the bus if we say that they were emotionally abusive darkest thoughts i fantasize about stabbing myself in the leg with a big thick kitchen knife or slitting open my throat to watch it uh, watch the blood squirt out darkest secrets my struggle with severe anxiety, depression, and borderline personality disorder have led me to many dark places. I've stolen pain pills from family and friends and snorted them for days at a time. I also have a history of combining uh, very strong benzos with alcohol and ending up barely able to breathe with my head on the toilet multiple times. I've been cutting myself for years and my scars are so severe that not a single soul has seen my wrists for over four years. I once purposefully... Uh, hit an artery just to see what would happen. I've struggled with eating issues since I was nine years old, which has gone completely unnoticed. I did not have much of a childhood and had to grow up very quickly and have struggled with severe mental illness literally since my first memories. Throughout all of the substance abuse and self-abuse, no one has ever really uh, known any of it. And though I had multiple suicide attempts and have struggled with suicidal ideation, no one knows about them, and I've never ended up in the hospital. I really should not be alive. But thank God you are. Thank God you are. Um, sexual fantasies are most powerful to you. I get extreme anxiety in any sex sexual situation and either completely panic or dissociate, so I avoid any sexual situations. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for peace. I don't. In the four years we've done that, this uh, the surveys, I don't know if anybody has ever just simply said, I wish for peace. Um, oh, and uh, I saw a great quote by, by Gandhi the other day. He, he said, um, actually, no, I was having coffee with Gandhi. Uh, now, Gandhi... <laughs> Uh, Gandhi's his brother that lives in uh, Boston. Uh, Gandhi said, there is no path to peace. Peace is the path. 
And I thought, wow, that is, uh, that is so beautiful. Have you shared these things with others? No, I've never really found anyone who I was able to tell anything to. Besides, I don't feel like I have uh, the right to complain. I feel ashamed of my privilege in life because I don't feel like I deserve it. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? I feel depressed and discouraged. Um, financial privilege has nothing to do with um, how lucky you are. You know, f- finances and emotional. There's emotional poverty and there's financial poverty. And emotional poverty is extremely serious. And the way that you've coped your whole life is not because of a failure on your part. That is how a normal human being reacts to complete deprivation of human connection with caretakers. Um, this is from the uh, sending you some love hang in there hang in there it can get better but um, put a put a premium on trying to find people that uh, that you can connect with I know it's hard and scary it was hard and scary for me too but I'm glad I did um, this is from the what has helped you survey and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Imon uh, we've had her before uh, fill out surveys her issues are anger anxiety depression and low self esteem and what's helped you exercise has become essential to my mental health at first I started exercising to lose weight but after not having as much success as I wanted to have I discovered that I would exercise for other reasons my anger is dulled after exercising and my depression is kept at bay this is especially important for me during the long winters in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you for that. Oh, I, I like this too. What have people done or said that has helped you with your issues, even though it's her kids? It's, I, I just think it's so touching. She writes, when my three, three-year-old son tells me unprompted and out of the blue that he loves me, I must admit that any issues I have simmering tend to get put on the back burner. Additionally, when my six-year-old daughter reaches her hand up to hold mine, I feel like an adult with my shit together. As my kids get older and don't want to tell me they love me and don't want to hold my hand anymore, I'm going to have to get my boost elsewhere. But at this point in my life, I will take it. This is um, Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by a woman who calls herself Octopus Muse. Uh, About her compulsive overeating, she writes, Like, I cannot get the food in fast enough. There is no time for air. I just need to keep stuffing my face so I don't have to feel whatever I'm avoiding feeling. Um, about having arthritis, limited mobility due, due to arthritis, like I'm at war with my body and I am losing, like I'm a freak because I can't do normal things like raising my arms up in the air or going to a picnic because getting up and down from the ground without the help of a chair is impossible. About her mania, the best feeling ever, like everything I do or say is golden and everything is falling into place perfectly and everyone I meet is my new best friend. Oh, that's such a great description snapshot from her life lying in bed feeling ill after binging on junk food i have a list of things to do that is pages long but instead of doing anything on it i've been binging on netflix and sleeping all day and not leaving the house my room looks like a trash can exploded there are candy wrappers empty bags and containers from food i've devoured everywhere and there are piles of dirty dishes on the desk and the dresser sending you some love Man, when our compulsions get a hold of us, it is just, 
It's like uh, I always have that picture of people in a hurricane where you're just pinned down by it, and uh, and you're just you feel like you're at its mercy. Um, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by <laughs> this one's so fucked up. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself the Panicky Panicker. And she writes, my boyfriend and I were staying in a hotel to go to my cousin's wedding in Minnesota. We love taking trips together because we get a chance to talk to each other in depth, listen to music we both agree on, and listen to your podcast. We usually camp when we travel, but this time, since it was a wedding, we stayed at a hotel together for the first time ever. We were hanging out there and getting a little drunk when I had a flashback for the last time I stayed in a hotel with a man, which was when I was kidnapped and raped in a hotel in Italy. Uh, I had a, and I didn't mean to, when I laughed about how fucked up this one, when I I wasn't laughing at that. Oh, shut up, Paul. Uh, I had a severe panic attack and my boyfriend, who is an incredible support for me, tried his very hardest to console me and removed me from my flashback. Um, He took me out to the parking lot for a cigarette and to exit the scene. I was frozen, crying, petrified, and completely removed from my body. My boyfriend was very attentive and worried, but still able to talk me down. I calmed down almost completely and opened up to him about a few things that had happened on that night that I was raped. I thought this would help soften the situation, but instead, my boyfriend started to have his own panic attack. We immediately switched roles almost identically. He became frozen and dissociative, and I was telling him, you're here, you're okay, over and over again, shaking him and trying to open his eyes. That is so fucked up. That is so fucked up. Oh, my God. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and And if I don't do it enough, thank you, everybody, that fills out the surveys. It means so, so much to me. And I'm sorry if your surveys don't get read. It doesn't mean that I don't appreciate them. There's just not, I just don't have enough energy um, or time in the, in the show to, to, to read them all. That was my codependent moment. Did everybody enjoy that? Got to make sure everybody's okay. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Joyful. Uh, She is bisexual in her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically abused. Um, Darkest thoughts. I fantasize about being best friends with a beautiful woman and us flirting and eventually kissing, leading into more exciting sexual stuff, but fantasies are not real and feel so different in real life darkest secrets. I've been with my boyfriend for two years. We've had threesomes with a woman a couple of times and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Lately, I've been craving more physical attention than what my boyfriend can give me. I dream often of having a sexual relationship with a girl or a guy or someone to give my body pleasure. I love my boyfriend, but when he has a couple of beers at night, some of his manly parts don't work, so our sexual activities happen in the morning or the early afternoon only. It's mostly at night when I feel the need for the sexual attention. Recently, I became Facebook friends with a boy I had a crush on ever since my parents moved in next door to his family. He's going through a divorce right now. He and I play words with friends, and I've been chatting with him through the game's chat window. Sometimes our chats have turned into a sexual conversation, and we've gone so far as to send pics of each other's private parts through text or email. I feel ashamed and embarrassed that I cannot seem to be faithful to my boyfriend, even in the most tempting of situations. I think that I really know... Um, 
I think that uh, maybe since we have had threesomes, my brain or my loins somehow think it's okay for me to do this in secret, but I really know it's not because I feel guilty. I know I have to stop now because what if my boyfriend proposes to me and all of a sudden I'm married doing the same stuff? I don't want to turn out like my mother who cheated on my father after 12 years of marriage and everything ended between them. I know all big bad decisions start with the small stuff and I know I have to do something about my urges before it gets way out of hand. One step at a time, I suppose, like instead of reaching out to another, I can use my my vibrator for now. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I've been known to watch incest porn and I feel embarrassed to admit that. I like the stuff where an older man or woman seduces or spies on a younger person, an uncle or grandparent or even a friend of the family, stepdad. It feels good while I'm watching it, but I feel disgusting after I come. You know, I think if you lined up uh, adults around the globe and said, uh, who isn't embarrassed, uh, to the things that make you come, uh, I think if you did that, the, probably the first thing to step forward would be a tumbleweed. Uh, do not feel, do not feel disgust uh, about that. And you know, my thoughts on your your thing with your boyfriend would be um, to tell him how it feels that that his drinking at night is more important to him than being physically intimate with you. Um, you deserve you deserve to be able to have sex at night. And if you can't stop with the cheating stuff, um, find a support group. You know, there may be some, some sex addiction going on there, but I would, I would start with talking to your boyfriend about that, having, a, having an honest conversation with him about it. You, you deserve to be able to have sex at night. Um, just my two thoughts. I'm not a professional, but I did cook on cable TV. Let's never forget that. Okay? This is Struggle in a Sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Cam. And I just love this. This is a, I'm just going to read it. Uh, he writes, it's not in a sentence, but it's, uh, he writes, my struggle is better described by a letter written to me from my depression. Hi, Cam. It's depression. I know how you feel. Just sleep. It'll all be better. <laughs> Just kidding. And you're my bitch. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Just go eat some healthy food and you'll find energy. What? Still tired? Probably low iron levels. <laughs> no kidding again. It's me, depression. And for the record, fuck you. P.S. Fuck you. No, I'm sorry. I don't know why I keep putting you down. It's just hard not to when you're so weak and I have your every thought by the throat as I dangle you above a lake of rusty hypodermic needles. Oh well, deal with it. Deal with every second of every day. Anyway, thanks for the three-day vacation. I know it's tough on you feeling happy and normal when I'm away and I bet you were missing me or thought I went missing or died. I didn't, so I decided to come back and surprise you. Don't worry, I won't go away. You're chained to me while I beat everything good out of you. I'll take another vacation in a month or two. I'll call the vacation another false hope and send you a postcard of your future. It'll be blank and non-existent. In the meantime, spend all your time with me. Don't talk to friends or family and your girlfriend probably thinks you're lame. Don't take it from me though. Just mull it over in your head till you believe it. Believe it. You're already dead. Fuck you again tomorrow. Signed, Depression with a smiley face. 
Thank you for that, Cam. That's, uh, that's Hall of Fame right there. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself... <laughs> love this name. Every time I think of a creative name, I get self-conscious and erase it. I'm a fan. I'm a fan already. And this is a, an awfulsome moment that, that, that he writes. I think it could be considered a, a happy moment, but I guess, yeah, it's more of an awfulsome moment. He writes, I teach uh, kindergarten through eight uh, general music in a rough part of a big city. Most of the kids are great to work with, but I do have a few classes that erupt in chaos. Every Thursday, I have two back-to-back autistic support classes. They are part of the reason I stay. The kids are so sweet. They always have fun and they try their hardest. Today, I was teaching the lower autistic support class, grades one to three. Things were going smoothly until we had a lockdown drill. I instructed the six boys to head over to the corner of the classroom away from the doors. There were two other teachers there to help, so I figured everything would go smoothly. Unfortunately, I forgot that I have a couch in the corner and that every boy would want to sit on it. About four kids tried to sit on it together, but of course this wasn't going to be conducive to a lockdown. I told the boys they couldn't sit there because then a few students would get left out. One student, we'll call him Nasir, which is a common name in my area, decides it's time to totally lose his shit. All of a sudden, all six boys are running around pushing each other. Nasir keeps trying to kiss one of the boys, and the rest of the boys are all piled on top of him to hold him back. Myself and the other adults are trying to stay calm and get the kids in order. Another boy tries to hide under the couch cushions, and I'm just hoping Admin doesn't come in and chew me out. I finally get one student to sit, and I tell him, You need to be the leader and set an example. Show your friends the right way to act. He listens and sits up straight. After a few minutes, three of his other friends start following his example. I tell them that they're doing a great job. Nasir is still trying to kiss another boy, but now he's moved on to running around yelling, Shut up, bitch! Every time he yells, the four boys who are under control get all hyped and start freaking out again. I tell the boys, Let it roll off your back. Don't let him change your actions. Keep setting a good example. Eventually, the boys start to listen. Every time Nasir starts yelling and calling them bitches, they say, just rolling off my back. Each time it affects them less and less until five of the six boys are all sitting quiet and calm. Nasir keeps trying to get them excited, but when they don't react, he actually says, it's not working. He starts to calm down. Then he sits next to one of the other teachers and puts his head on his shoulder. All six boys found their self-control, and we just sat for a few minutes. I told them that I was so proud of how they set a good example and that they were really acting like leaders. It was so moving to see these young boys learn how to stay positive when someone else is trying to drag them down. I wish my other classes and fellow adults, I might add, could learn from this lesson too. Ah, that made my day. It made my day. Hold on, theme song. You're not ready to come in yet. We got more surveys. This is this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Kim Jong-un. He's gay. He's in his 20s. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. He has struggled with uh, infidelity. Um, he is married. He's been married for a couple of years. And um, his he really goes back and forth on whether or not he wants to be in a relationship um, with his, his husband. And... Um, he feels trapped, and his his husband is abusive. The stuff that I read that is his. Uh, well, let me just read it. Um, and his and his husband is also in the military. They live in England, and um, 
He writes, my husband is not a bad person, just a little selfish at times and truthfully not on the same intellectual level as myself. I could never bring myself to end the relationship with him, maybe because I'm a pussy and couldn't face breaking up with someone in person. Breaking up with someone far away over the phone seems easier, even if the person I truly loved. Um, I don't want to be ungrateful to my husband, but he makes me feel bad about myself a lot of the time. He makes a huge deal over money and chores, and I honestly don't think he really loves me or is too ingrained in army life to love anyone if it's all he's ever known as an orphan who joined up at 16. I think I've been scared my whole life to do what I really want, and I don't know why. I feel trapped because I don't earn enough money to make it on my own despite working three jobs, and my husband constantly points out that I would have nothing without him. Um, you know, that is not love saying that that is just fucking abusive to say, to say something like that. And, um, any positive experiences with your abusers? Me and my husband do have a good relationship at times, but he can become very cruel, particularly when drunk. I would think, uh, you know, about checking out a, uh, support group for codependency, uh, maybe for the loved ones of, uh, people with alcoholism that might be a good thing to do um darkest secrets uh two timing two guys for years and lying to them both every day extensively has anyone else on the planet done anything quite so fucked up oh yeah they have you apparently you're you're uh you're you're not talking to enough people he writes, what the fuck uh, is wrong with me? I had a normal upbringing, was an overachiever all the way through school, good looking and fit, and used to have a lot of confidence. I got bullied quite severely, which made me extremely introverted, and the matriar- matriarchs of my family have tended to be entirely selfless martyrs who only exist to please others. I definitely inherited this. Um, I love how people say that they were raised in a perfect environment and then two sentences later, oh, and I happened to be raised by uh, martyrs and was bullied severely. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being raped by a muscular, hairy man with a large, thick cock over a car bonnet. I don't even know what a car bonnet is, but I'm, I'm, I'm down. I'm down for anything called a bonnet. Any kind of fucking over a bonnet... Uh, yeah, the bonnet, a pilgrim hat, uh, anything with a buckle, any good sport fucking over something that ties in a bow or a buckle. Let's do it. Anyway, continuing. Uh, being raped by a muscular hairy man with a large thick cock over a car bonnet with no regard for any pain I might be in. He comes inside me, then walks away. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to be able to have a one normal conversation with my dad about feelings without it being embarrassing or gross. I'm sorry that you don't have that with your dad, and I I know how that feels. Um, my dad was so fucking hard to talk to about feelings. It was just... you. It, it, was, it was a struggle just to get him to not walk 10 steps ahead of you while you were talking to him. Um, I remember I remember my brother and I would we were like 10 years old, 12 years old and we're like, Dad, come out and play basketball with us. And he'd just be like, no, I'm not interested. Like we were peers of his. And uh, you just wind up taking that personally. You know, even though you think, yeah, my dad doesn't like to play that, but you get older and you're like, 
why the fuck would you, why would you not, your kids are asking you to spend time with them. Why would you, it's not like, well, uh, you know, sorry kids, I got to go to work. It's, uh, no, that doesn't interest me. Anyway, um, the reason I bring that up is is to say don't un- don't don't un- underestimate the pain and damage that can be done by not being able to connect with a parent. I know that seems obvious, but I felt like I have to um, say that. What if anything do you wish for? True independence. Well, buddy, that support group will be a great place for you to start. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Small parts of it. No one knows the full extent of the two-timing, and they would be rightfully horrified at me if they did. I'm a horrible cunt. I don't think you are. I think you're just uh, acting out because you don't know any other way to express your feelings. Um, I'm All right, I'm starting to give my opinion too much, and I'm fucking annoying myself. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Rose. And about her depression, she writes, I'm in a fishbowl and all my responsibilities and obligations are pounding on the glass from the outside, demanding my attention. But I just stare blankly and listen to the muffled yelling, unable to move or unwilling or somewhere in between. Oh, boy, is that good. That is, uh, that's poetic. Um, anxiety. That feeling when you're walking down the stairs in the middle of the night and miss the last step, except it's that fucking feeling all the time. About being a sex crime victim, I walk in public space and somehow everyone can see my abuser's handprints all over my body. Everyone can tell I am damaged goods. Um, About having a depersonalization and dissociative identity disorder, she writes, time is a loose, cold thing I can't catch or fully understand. My realness is always questionable. I am a false representation of the things I want to be without the sincere ability to be those things naturally in a constant stream of, did that really happen? Is any of my life real? Are any of my memories true? I blink and a week passes. Oh my God, that just sounds so, so overwhelming and confusing. Uh, snapshot from her life. I explain having DID to a stranger and they ask me, how do you know when you're in reality? It takes me a few moments and I say, honestly, if it's painless, it's not real. Reality is where I can't tell the salt from the wound. Wow. Sending you some love, Rose. Again, go check out that that guest blog by... um, Melanie, I think, is is uh, the name of the person that wrote the guest blog for us about DID. It's uh, it's really eloquent. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Nani, and she writes, I was lying in bed, coming down from a particularly bad panic attack. I was all alone in the house. The television was on, uh, on mute because I couldn't handle any noise, and then I heard a little puff as my three-legged cat jumped up onto the bed. He walked up the bed, slowly came over to my face, and then laid down directly next to my head, facing me on my pillow. He put his only front paw on my forehead, and it was the sweetest thing in the world. I smiled at him, and he slow blinked at me, and it was such a tender, quiet moment. His quiet purring was the only reason I was able to relax enough to fall asleep that night, and I woke up with him still there, right beside me, purring away. Ah, love that love that I came home from you know doing my usual work uh, at my 
coffee coffee shop office and um normally the dogs are in the front of the house and uh, they were in the back in the back of the house i think because there was a fly there and they were just both just on the bed just so relaxed and you know that like when you see dogs and they've just got they have the blankets arranged in such a way that it just looks you're like jealous of them for being an animal and being able to to just make these nests and cocoons and sleeping as long as they feel like it. And um, and they both kind of sat up a little bit and then I started talking to them and they both just kind of eased back into their, into their little snoozy faces. And um, you know that when they're just hanging right in between being awake and being asleep and, uh, and I just put my nose right next to Herbert's and... Uh, and we just sat there for like five minutes and all the anxiety that I, that I had had today just kind of, just kind of went away. And uh, I just kissed his delicious little snout. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Kimchi and Couscous. And um, she is... In her 30s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, she's straight. Uh, she was the victim of uh, sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, I was raped Bill Cosby style. There's a phrase to make your skin crawl. I didn't acknowledge it as rape until seven years later. I checked it up to, quote, sexomnia. I woke up in the middle and said, no, 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 and the guy stopped. Then, seven years later, I was taking a walk and thinking about how weird it was that I only had sexomnia that one time and it all clicked. It was a weird moment. Also, I was quite a binge drinker in college and would end up sleeping in random places. One time, I woke up to a guy with his hands down my pants. I know it's not my fault, but I kind of blame myself. Uh, she's been emotionally abused um, and abused in the workplace. Uh, she writes, uh, any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, my boss was my best friend and sort of a boyfriend till things went sour. Darkest thoughts. I think I secretly hope everyone has bad marriages because I'm single. I also secretly hope everyone hates being a parent because I don't think I'll ever be one. I hope my dad divorces my stepmother. Darkest secrets. I wonder if a guy I had really drunken sex with in college actually consented. I barely remember it. I gave a blowjob to a much older guy I just met in a car in a roadside bar when I was 21. My father would be so proud. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Anything that involves me serving guys and they don't pay attention to me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my stepmother, please leave my family. What, if anything, do you wish for? A boyfriend who loves me like one of my exes did. Have you shared these things with others? Yeah, occasionally it makes me feel a lot better. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit teary, but I've worked through a ton of it in therapy, uh, DBT, and the Headspace app. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? DBT is not just for borderline anymore. And the Headspace Mindfulness Meditation app is a game changer. <laughs> Any comments to make the podcast better? More kittens. Well, if my wife wasn't allergic, we'd probably have some cats. Thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that. This is from the survey, uh, Young Male Abused by Older Female. 
and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Taco Whisperer, um, and he is straight in his 20s, and he writes, uh, I was m- repeatedly molested by my dad's girlfriend when I was about five. Uh, I was young enough that I didn't know it was wrong. I wasn't old enough to have a concept of normal, so the thing she did to me didn't raise any alarms, but I knew I didn't like it, and I remember wishing she would disappear from my life. I remember feeling violated when she would molest me. My grandparents found out about it somehow, and they took me out of that situation. They also gave me a therapist to talk about what happened. Besides those three people, I've never told anyone. I'm not sure it has had some effect on my on me now that I'm an adult. I have some mild depression and anxiety, and I tend to dissociate from reality in my daily life. The molestation took place in such a short time frame relative to the rest of my life that it's hard to say for sure if it has affected me as an adult. Um, well, I would say that dissociating um, is certainly a, a red flag. Uh, Remembering these things, what feelings come up? As a child, I remember fantasizing about tying her up and torturing her. I wanted her to feel as scared as I felt around her. I hated her. Now, though, I don't feel anything. She was obviously a sick woman and probably had a shitty childhood herself. She also suffered from rheumatoid arthritis and was in a lot of physical pain. She was a sad, sick person. That part of my life feels very distant now, and I feel pretty removed from it. Um, and I think the question is, is that because of healing or is that because um, you're keeping the weight of it buried? Um, and if you're not in therapy, I, I would uh, I would go back to I would go back to therapy. Um, do you feel any damage was done? I would probably be a different person had she never come into my life. Um, thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from the being hospitalized uh, survey, and um, <laughs> right, I'm just going to read it because this one this could be an awfulsome moment. It's filled out by a guy who calls himself Graveheart, and uh, he was hospitalized for attempted suicide. He writes, "I was 19 years old and tried to gas myself in my mother's car. I took it to the most remote location I could, taped a hose to the gas pipe, and fed it through the window." Needless to say, it didn't work, and I'll get to that later. It didn't work, so I started walking. I didn't know where I was going, but I probably walked about 20 miles and collapsed. An ambulance was called, and they realized I was a psych case and took me to the hospital. I remained in a fetal state for two days without saying anything. My mother came with my sadistic aunt, and while my mother was trying to find out what was wrong with me, my aunt was pulling my hair trying to find out where I'd left the car. Anyways, after a few weeks in hospital, I was in the RV room and everyone was sharing their experience and I said I tried to gas myself but the car ran out of petrol. Everyone started laughing hilariously and I joined in. Best therapy ever. So, you know, uh there that that's a push uh for better car car economy. Save the planet and save uh actually no, that's the opposite. We need worse standards. It's good that we have terrible uh, cars with terrible... Oh, shut up, Paul. For the love of God, shut your mouth. 
This is a happy moment filled out by Sarita, and she writes, uh, When I arrive to pick up my son from school and I see him before he sees me, for a few moments I watch him play and interact with other kids. I feel like I'm getting a secret glimpse into his life that I otherwise miss. It feels like my heart is out there, walking around happy and joyful. It's beautiful. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Kit. And she writes, on my morning commute, I pass through a lower-income neighborhood with an elementary school. The residents of the neighborhood are largely immigrants, and there have been some tensions between different ethnic groups in the area recently. I sometimes see an older gentleman who I assume is a Sikh. He wears a turban and has a long white beard. Uh, Walking a little girl, perhaps his granddaughter, to school, and he always uses a cane or walking stick. One morning when I was feeling very sad and lonely on my drive to work, I paused at the crosswalk to let him pass in front of me as I made a right turn. At the same time, a Latino woman with several small children was crossing the street towards us. The littlest boy was carrying a long, slender tree branch that he had probably picked up on the walk to school. The older gentleman, ever so briefly, touched his cane lightly to the little boy's stick as they passed each other. As the family got closer to pass in front of my car, I saw that they were all smiling and the little boy with the stick had an enormous grin. It was a very small moment, but it made me happy to see what difference this tiny gesture of human connection had made between people who may have journeyed from here from very different parts of the world. I love it. I love it when you guys give me a a moment to end the podcast on that's just... uh, sublimely beautiful well i hope you uh i hope you enjoyed the podcast i hope uh you feel less alone i hope you feel some comfort i hope you learned something um i hope something inspired you Uh, i hope i hope that you heard something that reminded you that you're not alone and if you're not getting help i hope something made the idea of getting help a little less scary um And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.